Happy New Year! Welcome back for more frank discussions about academic mental health and illness. Today we travel to Edinburgh in Scotland to meet Seda Batalani. Seda is a PhD researcher and tutor at the University of Stirling, whose thesis looks at migrant businesses, translanguaging, and identity. Yes, I did ask her what that means at the start of our episode. Seda was drawn into research in linguistics after learning about the field during her undergrad. She became fascinated by how our communication impacts the way we perceive each other. She's broadly interested in multilingualism, migration, language policies, and minoritized languages. She also uses her research expertise to help endangered language communities in Turkey. During our discussion, Seda opens up about early struggles with an anxiety disorder and the complexities of pursuing an ADHD diagnosis whilst also an international student. I suppose it's the kind of hidden curriculum of being an academic in a Russell Group university. So that's kind of like the Ivy League, you know, like prestigious university. Uh, It was very intensive. The thing about ADHD is that you can you usually leave it to the last day to study for the exam and you sort of cram everything into your brain. Next day you just dump it out and then you can forget it again. But when I got to my uh, master's here, I suddenly had to organize a lot of tasks around much longer sort of deadlines, you know? I simply couldn't. I remember um, writing like a 4,000 word paper uh, the night before and I would just sit in front of my laptop for like 16 hours and just crash afterwards because I simply (laughs) I simply couldn't do it another way there was a lot of that and there was also of course you're navigating a completely different country if you find this episode valuable and have some spare change remember you can support the podcast at buymeacoffee.com forward slash voa podcast thank you Welcome to Voices of Academia with Emily King. It's a podcast where researchers from around the world open up about their mental health. They might laugh, cry, or say things you disagree with, but this is lived experience, not professional advice. We cover some sensitive material, but it's worth it to normalize difficult conversations, reduce stigma, and help people feel less alone. Let's get into it. All right, Seda, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. <laughs> um, so you came forward, you were actually one of the first people to respond when Voices of Academia announced that we were going to set up a podcast um, back mm-hmm. on World Mental Health Day in 2020. So it's almost a year mm-hmm. ago now. <laughs> um, and we've obviously been in contact. No, not a problem. We've obviously been in contact over that time. But um, I guess uh, for our listeners to understand, uh, I don't, necessarily interview uh, our guests in order because I'm always trying to sort of make sure that we have um, a diverse range of stories and a diverse range of um, sort of people coming forward as much as possible. So um, Mm -hmm. that can be one of the reasons for a bit of a delay. 
We we did um, almost schedule an interview about six months ago, but I know you were sort of further investigating your health at that time, and I think that'll probably come up today. Yeah. And and you got mm-hmm. married too, so congratulations! I did. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> and yeah. you mentioned uh, pre-recording that your partner's Italian. Could you tell me a little bit about him? <laughs> so um he's um, we actually met during our masters here in edinburgh ah. um so we i mean i was doing applied linguistics and he was doing linguistics and um at the time we were just friends but when i came back for my phd it kind of just naturally developed i suppose so he's a phd student as well he's at the university of edinburgh and i'm at the university of sterling so okay yeah it's just a lot of stress a lot of writing all that stuff in our house <laughs> but you can commiserate with each other yeah, as well exactly misery loves company yeah. <laughs> so, yeah and what was the favorite part of your wedding <sighs> to be honest probably the photos oh yeah <laughs> so so the thing is we couldn't um uh, we couldn't have like a proper wedding wedding um I because, was wondering about know, that middle of the pandemic mm-hmm. um so we had to sort of we could only have two um of what sort witnesses and that's oh. all that we could have in the room wow okay so uh what we did was um we just sort of broadcasted everything on zoom and invited everyone wow yeah (laughs) that would have been so difficult Um, because I know Italian families you know big on community they would have wanted to have hundreds of people I'm not sure what the same with Turkey yeah Yeah, our cultures are really similar in that sense Mm. um and I mean we would have loved to celebrate with them too obviously Mm. it was it was really hard because we had to do everything ourselves um yeah. I had I had a whole wedding dress tailored for myself and then I just left it in Turkey because we were supposed to get married in Turkey no. and then you know the second wave started mm. so I just bought another dress here for like you know just for the day yeah <laughs> and, yeah but I mean I really wanted to have some sort of photos in the city that we met mm-hmm. right so yeah. Edinburgh yeah, yeah um so that that was really nice that I, I'm sure like in the future when we look back at it we're going to be really we're going to remember it very fondly mm. <laughs> it'll definitely make for yeah. a good story for the grandkids if you get to that point <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope so yeah exactly I, I'm going to tell the story forever like to whoever who listens like uh, that will listen basically <laughs> love <Yeah>. it <laughs> um so you mentioned uh, so you're obviously a PhD student um, um, and mm-hmm. you mentioned in your bio that your PhD thesis partly investigates migrant translanguaging. And I'm, I'm just right. intrigued. What is that exactly? So the idea of translanguaging is that, um, um, so it, it's, it, it comes from sort of like multi- bilingualism, multilingualism research. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole idea is, um, to give you some context, in, back in... Um, for the most part of the 20th century, we looked at languages like in the bilingual brain or multilingual brain as separate entities. You know, here's Turkish, here's English, and they, they are separate things and they don't mix well and they shouldn't mix well and all, all these stuff. And then um, in the last, especially two decades, I want to say, I mean, the term translanguaging is older than that, but um, especially in the past two decades, uh, the idea that languages might not be that those rigid boxes and maybe we use all of them more like in a basket 
you know, without c- careful regard for, you know, oh, I'm speaking Turkish now or I'm speaking English now, you know, just choosing whatever you have in your little basket of everything mm-hmm. uh, w- when you want to communicate with someone. That sort of idea started coming up more. So uh, that was the idea behind sort of the idea behind translanguaging. So if you're a multilingual or like a bilingual person, there's a good chance that you're going to be using a lot of different, um, you know, languages, you know, named languages or like different um, modes of communication. Like I'm using my hands right now, mm-hmm. even though the listeners won't see it. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm using my hands a lot. Um, so use, you use all of your communicative repertoire is what we call it. Um, and not putting these things in these little boxes of different languages helps us in a variety of ways. Um, there's a sociolinguistic aspect. There's um, there's all sorts of things, but I'm not going to get too much into it. Yeah. But essentially, uh, it's basically um, I was I'm, I'm, I I did my sort of uh, field research in a barber shop uh, where there was a lot of um, you know a lot of people from different backgrounds. So I had Turkish people, Polish people, um, and then the customer base was very 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 varied yes um so i I basically looked at you know oh how do people use language when there's so many of them Mm -hmm. (laughs) like so many of these languages Mm -hmm. you know how do people communicate you know so that was the idea behind that i don't know if that was clear at all but yeah no I think so like I mean I I, I'm familiar with people that kind of um yeah they'll switch between multiple different languages when they're communicating particularly Mm. like with kids Mm. I guess they'll say like one sentence Mm. in one language and then another sentence Mm. in another language or Mm. you know a sentence Mm. that's mixed Mm. and I guess translanguaging Mm -hmm. is the term for that so the term is basically like we don't like it's basically like how can you mix when there are there isn't a big boundary between the two anyway so it's like demolishing that idea of mix mm. is part of it, you know, because right, okay. there isn't something right. to mix. These are already together, blended together yeah. is the idea. Exactly. Intertwined, I suppose. Yeah. Okay. So that's kind of kind of like a theoretical shift. And uh, I'm guessing say. it's a way of yeah. kind of, um, yeah, because I know part of your research is on migrant identity as well. So I'm guessing that mm. is a way of kind of uh, embracing all the different sides of one's identity. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, embracing everything and then maybe just creating the new sense of identity as well through these conversations, you know, that you have with people. Mm. Uh, that Hence the migration tie uh, for my research, basically. But yeah. yeah. It's really interesting. I'm, I've always been really interested in language, so I wanted to touch on that. <laughs> um, and you also <laughs> mentioned that you use your research expertise to help endangered language communities in Turkey. So we've obviously already acknowledged that you were born in Turkey. Um, and, and I'm just yeah. interested, like, what constitutes an endangered language community? Community and, and what languages fall into that category in Turkey? Um, so, yeah, so um, endangered languages, most of the time when we talk about endangered languages, we will use certain lists that already have categorized these um, languages and there's varying degrees. So like a language could be, you know, on a, on a scale of endangeredness, let's say. And it, it, it depends, like it could be, I mean, it could be one language might have two speakers left, like two native speakers left. Mm-hmm. But if a language, a, another language might have like 100,000 speakers, but that could still be endangered because it's not being transmitted to the next generations. Okay. So like there's yep. a decline in the people who speak it, right? So it, 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 it's, a, it's a spectrum mm-hmm. in that sense. Mm-hmm. But 
Um, in, the, in terms of Tur uh, Turkey's um, uh, endangered languages, the, the reason most of them are called endangered is because, again, of this decline mm. uh, in the speakers. Some of them are dead, uh, unfortunately. Mm. Um, but the languages that I am currently focusing on are um, Laz and uh, Circassian. So Circassian itself is not, a, it's a Caucasian, like it's in the Caucasus. Uh, it's spoken widely in the Caucasus and it's a diaspora language in Turkey. And that's why it's in the decline. So that's why it's endangered in Turkey, even though it's like a still sort of big language uh, in Russia, where where uh, it's the, like that's the motherland of the language, but in Turkey, it's on a decline, you know? So that's the uh, kind of thing. And for Laz, um, it's, an, it's a language indigenous to the, northeast of Turkey and then spilling over to Georgia. Uh, so that whole Black Sea uh, sort of end of Black Sea part, basically. Uh, and again, there's a sharp decline uh, in the in the number of speakers uh, of the language. And this has a lot to do with previous very aggressive language policies against these languages. Um, so banning uh, banning the, the speaking of these languages like people couldn't speak them on the street let alone you know be educated or read or write and all that stuff and we're talking about like a hundred year uh, period uh, so that has done a lot of damage for these people mm -hmm. and I suppose where I come in is um, trying to both raise awareness within these communities like within the people who actually do identify as um, Circassian or Laz uh, but also uh, out with that category, right? So just people who are maybe ethnically Turkish, majority, like, you know, uh, uh, as uh, majority ethnicity, I suppose, uh, who might not even know that love is actually a language and not just the way people speak over there in the Black Sea, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so yeah, 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 yeah. there's that kind of understanding. Um, so, and also I'm trying to help people like this, help um, sort of, maybe slow that generational uh, decline uh, with the translanguaging stuff, with the whole biling bilinguality, multilinguality, mm -hmm. lingualism type thing. So that's where I come in at the moment. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I don't know if I went on too long. Sorry. No, no, that was great. Super interesting. So yeah, if anyone in the audience is a linguist, uh, Seth is uh, the one to go to. <laughs> Yes, please. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and um, how did you develop an interest in, in that particular type of research? Uh, so um, it's, it's really interesting, actually, because um, I didn't even know linguistics as a field existed until the second year of uh, university uh, when I took an introduction to linguistics class. Okay. In your undergrad. Um, oh, wow. Exactly. In, in my undergrad. Exactly. And I was like, wow, this is a thing that exists. And I had a teacher who mostly focused on sociolinguistics and not formal linguistics. And that was the thing that got me really interested in, in it because like, wow, language and society, you know, how we speak, um, you know, all, all these societal things, like, I don't know, gender, age, class, um, like these have an effect on how we perceive each other. The, the way we speak have has an effect on how we perceive each other and mm. there's so many things going on uh, about the languages that we speak even even if we don't think about it daily yeah, you know sure. it's something that very much affects us you know um so that was I think that was the entry point for me and during my master's I just 
I just got really interested in like bilingualism and multilingualism, I guess, yeah. <laughs> you know, because it was it was really interesting to me. So and then I ended up here. Yeah, somehow. here you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cool. <laughs> well, now that I've barraged you with the questions about your life, we'll get back to the key focus <laughs> for today. Um, so I'm interested to know why you'd like to share your mental health story with us. I suppose it is to sort of give an idea I mean okay so I do qualitative research right and in qualitative research we do go very deep into certain almost individual levels to see what we can learn from those very micro stories right Mm. so we don't maybe we don't always look at the oh the big huge picture but when we look at that individual part we can see that it's really relevant to a lot of people, even though I'm just talking about one person, mm-hmm. right? In my whole research, maybe. So I feel like maybe my story in my own specific context could resonate with others. And if it doesn't resonate, people could learn that, hey, this exists too, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. I've never thought about this before. So uh, that's, that, that was the idea. Yeah, absolutely. And Yeah, I totally agree with that because, you know, I've obviously interviewed a wide variety of people so far, but I can still see little parts of my own story in almost every single person that I interview, even though, you know, they obviously have unique parts of their experience as well that I'm Mm -hmm. learning about. Um, Yeah, Mm -hmm. I definitely agree. So I just want to thank you for coming forward and being willing to be so open about this and particularly at this time during the pandemic. (laughs) No, honestly, thank you for initiating this. I think it's such an important topic that we need to talk about and talk with you know like have that sort of com- communication between uh between us as I suppose academics mm. yeah I agree and I, I think it's great that it's a global thing because it means like you know even though there might only be a select number of people in each country that are you know kind of comfortable with sharing we're able to share this globally and start to build this kind of community Mm -hmm. where people realize oh yeah like that person has dealt with something kind of similar or you know someone that's um not necessarily comfortable sharing is is able to start to build this community for themselves and realize okay like I'm not the only one I might be the only one in my department you know that that Mm -hmm acknowledges this but I'm definitely not the only one because there are people all Mm. over the world that are talking about this kind of stuff exactly so if anything you say today really resonates with um our listeners where can they and they'd sort of like to get in contact with you where can they find you online um I I think I mean they can find me on twitter they can find me through my email I guess that would be fine as well if if they don't use social media I mean, I'm not going to say the handles and everything because I, I suppose we would write them down. Uh, oh, you can say it and I'll, I'll put it in the episode description as well. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So like um, on Twitter, it would be at Alasa Parts and that's kind of like a Scottish sort of saying. So it might not. <laughs> I was wondering. Uh, catch on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it's, it was something I heard um, at a conference here in Scotland and it was just something I kind of liked and I, I was just like okay I'll, I'll, I guess I'll use this handle then <laughs> and um, my email is just uh, b.s.usta at stir.ac.uk 
Okay. Um, so yeah, those those could be the two outlets. All right. Awesome. Yeah. And yeah, we will put those in the episode description. So Alasso Parts is mm-hmm. A L A S S O P A I R T S. What does it mean? Um, it's so the thing with it is uh, when I heard it used, I heard it used in a sort of um, positive light. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I realized, am I am I actually using something um, like am I using it in a in, in a good way? I wasn't sure. Is this a naughty word? Uh, <laughs> uh, no, no, no. It's not. It's not because it, it was just like. Well, okay, the meaning is, let's just start with the meaning. Mm-hmm. The meaning is like, um, so I'm just going to, because I had it saved on the side in case it might come up. Sure. Right. Uh, so uh, there's the Lado, uh, Lado Parts uh, version. So it's like the, I suppose, male version, Lad and Lass, right? Mm-hmm. And it basically means uh, a Lado Parts is a youth, uh, particularly one from a humble background who is considered talented or promising. Oh. You know, so I like <laughs> it was, that. It was like a, I know, I know. It was like a really nice. So the last version is obviously like the um, female version. Yeah. And I, I wanted to go with that. Um, and I hope it still has that nice positive meaning mm-hmm. <laughs> and it doesn't have that sort of maybe a negative connotation that I don't know about because I really like it. <laughs> let's just let's just ignore that side of it and be like, yeah, it's positive. Exactly. <laughs> if we have any uh, Scottish people listening, just just keep quiet exactly. on that one. <laughs> Don't ruin it for me. <laughs> no, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to shift gears into um, your academic mental health story now, Seda. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, we're, we're in the second year of this global pandemic and I always feel weird talking about mental health without acknowledging that mm-hmm. so I just wanted to ask yeah how how are you given the pandemic and everything that's sort of going on right now I know it's a loaded question <laughs> but how is it for you it is it's it could have been way worse uh so let's start with the positive okay <laughs> you know um I'm lucky in that I had my partner throughout this whole thing mm-hmm. uh like with me in the same city and all that if I didn't have someone with me, I know that I would have been significant in a, in a significantly worse position. So I'm really grateful for my partner, my husband, uh, in that sense. But of course, I'm, I mean, I'm an international student um, in Scotland and living abroad is never very easy. Um, and especially in certain environments under certain circumstances like the visa status that I have here it can be particularly challenging and I suppose I really I really felt that so I don't I don't think we mentioned this um in the like on uh, on record um but so for example my husband hasn't been back to Italy uh, in two years and I haven't been back to Turkey in a year Mm. in over a year Mm. and again we had to get married uh, without all like all our loved ones and everything. Yeah. Um, and it has also taken a toll on obviously my like physical health as well, in the sense that I can't go out very often. And without that sort of going out, um, I can really feel the toll that doing a PhD in front of a desk yeah, all day absolutely. has really taken a toll on my neck and, you know, like, uh, 
uh, on my lower back and everything. It's like it's gotten to a point where walking up a flight of stairs can leave me breathless yes. sometimes. Oh, you know? Me too. So, <laughs> right? I, I'm happy someone relates. <laughs> so, that know. happened to me last so, year when I was teaching and I was just like, oh, no. <laughs> I know, I know, exactly. So, um, and of course, I'm, I mean, I, I really like seeing people and hosting people in my house and, you know, in, in that sense, I, I, I'm really a people person. Mm. So that's something that I miss a lot. Thankfully, we moved to this new place last year, I think, like almost exactly a, a year ago, uh, I moved here and our current neighbors right now are like really nice. Uh, <laughs> like awesome. they're really nice. So there's that sort of sense of community uh, in that sense. So that, that has been a godsend really. Uh, but other than that, um, doing the PhD is already a sort of very lonely feeling. Mm. Sometimes it can be very isolated, like you can feel very isolated sure. uh, while you're doing a PhD. Um, and what do you do? Like you, you have some faculty meetings, you go into your shared space, you know, the common space uh, at the faculty maybe. And now that we don't have that sort of thing, um, I, uh, it can get much harder. Mm. Because, I mean, the, the Zoom fatigue is real, right? So mm. you don't really want to, like, when you want to meet friends, even that ha can become a chore yep. because you've been on Zoom for the entire day or, like, MS Teams or whatever. So uh, even just having a casual chat with your friends online feels like it requires a lot of energy, mm. uh, you know? And um, especially, I mean, I, I suppose we're going to get into that later on, but especially for like someone like me who, I mean, I am at the moment self-diagnosed, but um, who has ADHD, right? Mm. I do, I start with a like more limited energy mm -hmm. <laughs> to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, and with my anxiety, of course, there's all, all sorts of, you know, like before we started this interview, I, I was feeling like, oh my God, it's okay. Like, just, just calm down. Yeah. It's going to be fine. Yeah. You know, just, just these whole these all these things like piling up on top of each other just has made this uh, pandemic really hard on me mm -hmm. I feel like mm -hmm. I'd like to say I'm coping well but I I really I I I, I feel like I'm missing a lot of things mm -hmm. um and missing out on a lot of things as well because uh, again, I'm I'm here for a limited time in Scotland, um, and there were so many things that we wanted to do still. And yeah. uh, you know, I'm I'm gonna have to return to Turkey uh, in like maybe one two years, something like that. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, oh, okay, like, are we gonna get to do the things that we really wanted to do? Yeah. Uh, so there's always that stress as well, I suppose. Yeah, it's all over the place. I'm sorry, but my feelings about this thing is all over the place. Yeah, to no, so. totally relatable though. And I mean, hopefully, if you don't get to do the things in Scotland now, maybe you can go back at another point, you know, in the future. Hopefully. But I think that um, concept of uh, loneliness. I think a lot of researchers, regardless of their um, uh, level of seniority, you know, like even postdocs um, mm -hmm. and, and supervisors, mm -hmm. lab heads, will be able to relate to that, you know, feeling of mm -hmm. increased loneliness, I think, during the pandemic, mm -hmm. um, because research mm -hmm. 
you know, I guess depending on the field that you're in, but it often is quite isolating. Um, and so this mm-hmm. has just kind of confounded that. And I think a lot of people mm-hmm. talk about how important it is to have things going on outside of your research to, you know, mm-hmm. partially help mm-hmm. deal with the difficulties of our industry. Mm-hmm. And without those things, mm-hmm. you know, it, it makes it so, so, so Absolutely. much harder. So personally, I can definitely relate to that. And I think a lot of other people in the audience will be able to as well. Mm-hmm. So good luck. Yeah. You could do it. Keep going. <laughs> Thank you. I'll try. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, so you've touched on a little bit um, that you're pursuing an ADHD diagnosis at the moment. And you've obviously mentioned that you're yeah. an international student. Um, so right, yeah. yeah, if I may, I just wanted to, as I mentioned before recording, just highlight, you know, that there are a lot of different things that you have had to try to manage and, and try to overcome. And although we can't cover all of those today, I think it's just important to acknowledge that, um, you know, you're managing this on the side of a PhD and on the side <laughs> of a global pandemic. Um, so uh, you have been diagnosed with um, generalized anxiety disorder in the past, and, and that's something that we will touch on today. Um, obviously, you're an international student. You're um, a previous minority as well. So you're an ex-hijabi, which I know will come up. Um, today Mm -hmm. Um, you've mentioned to me that you also deal with chronic insomnia um, and yeah you're obviously pursuing this ADHD diagnosis Mm -hmm. so you know that's a that's a lot Um, even if you weren't doing a PhD and if you weren't kind of separated from your family and and yeah I I I don't want it to come across as like a laundry list and you know maybe it's um a little bit challenging for you to hear that and I'm I'm sorry to to put it in that kind of context um but I think it just kind of highlights yeah, the, the level of strength that you have, that you have been able to, you know, continue um, and, you know, you're, you're sort of managing okay and, and you know, you're being um, quite courageous in opening up about it today as well. So thank you. Thank you. you. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's not even a laundry, like to be perfectly honest with you, when you said all those things, the first thing that comes to my mind is, oh, I'm just making these up, aren't I? You know, so there's, there's always that sort of background noise in my head. Yeah, like, that guy <laughs> that sits in the back of the head. I know that guy very well. Exactly, exactly. So I was just like, oh, do I really have these things? Maybe I sh- maybe this wasn't such a good idea. You know, no, like just, I, and, yeah. you know, like I, I totally understand. Um, but, mm. you know, we will get into some of how this has impacted your life. And, and I, you know, I, before even talking about that, I know that I'm going to learn so much about what you've had to deal with. So, yeah so no very real and you know very um difficult things to manage and and overcome so you were diagnosed with a generalized anxiety disorder at at 17 and you said that was um, potentially thanks to high stakes national exams back home for you in turkey (laughs) um but you said it sort of hit you the hardest during your master's in scotland and that's when you started on medication um, so yeah. would you mind sharing, you know, sort of your first memory of severe anxiety? Cause I think maybe some of the audience may not have experienced that before. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So if we start with the, this high stakes nationalist exam thing that I just mentioned. So in Turkey to get into a university, you need to take this, um, well, when I entered it anyway, 
you need to take two um, again high stakes national exams. So um, one and a half million students took it the year I uh, went into it, and basically it's like three hours of your life dictates the course of your life. Mm. Uh, no yeah, pressure. Like a three hour test. No pressure. Exactly. <laughs> no pressure. Really. Um, so so there were two tests um, that I need to go through to you know get into a university and at the time I wanted to study medicine I'm really happy it didn't turn out to be that way Mm -hmm. I'm really happy with where I am but um, just for some context it is the hardest uh, major to get into Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of that test you need to do really well right so all your like your past four years of high school culminates to this moment right and the year before I took the exam um, there was some sort of scandal with cheating in the exam. So they, uh, in the year I entered the exam, they banned students from going to the bathroom during that three hour (laughs) thing. Um, And I needed the bathroom. (laughs) And and so I I just, I remember, I I realized, oh my God, I need to go like to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And I was looking at the questions and I was realizing, like, even now, as I'm telling you this, I, I, I feel my chest tightening. And it's been, what, 10 years? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, it's it was like, I, I, I vividly remember, like, I finished. So uh, I finished uh, the, what was that? Um, natural sciences test. Okay, so there's four general subjects you need to do. And I was like, oh, my God, I need to do maths. But... I, I looked at the questions and I was so stressed out. Like I was like, oh my God, I, I don't think I can answer these questions. I'll just skip over to social sciences. And I remember 40 que- there were 40 questions and I cried while filling all of them, oh. all 40 of those. Oh. And I was like, oh my God, I, 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 I can't, I need to go. And I called the hall monitor and she was like, I'm sorry, I can't let you go to the bathroom. Um, and so I remember very distinctly cry like, I'm crying as I'm solving these questions and I'm looking at my left hand and thinking, I wish there was someone who could hold my hand right now. Mm. Like, I just wish someone held my hand right now, Mm. you know? Oh my God, I'm getting so emotional, you know? So so then I started panicking a lot. Like my breath got really sort of shallow and everything. And I did maybe 10 questions of the maths and I was just like, okay. I have to, I have to leave. I, I can't anymore, you know? So I just uh, gave my papers and everything. And it was, it was devastating for mm-hmm. me because um, like, uh, just to give you an idea, this, this would have meant that I did, uh, I would have gotten a worse score than I would have at the beginning of the year if I hadn't studied at all and took the test. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that would have meant that basically. And I remember I went down to the bathroom. <laughs> it was downstairs. And I was like wailing, basically. And there was this woman in the bathroom, and you know, I'm I'm having all these um, uh, hyper I'm hyperventilating uh, at that point, you know. And there was this like, cleaning lady in the room, and she was like, "Oh, it's okay. You can take the test next year because you can only take it once a year. Uh, you can take it next year." And I was like, "You don't understand my entire like I I I have to study for this for another year, you know." And I'm like in such a bad situation and then the whole monitor came into the bathroom and I thought oh my god maybe she will pity me and take me back in Mm. and she said 
could you cry silently? You're disturbing other people. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry you had to go through that. <laughs> yeah, so um so that that that's the one that really comes to my mind because mm. I just I I remember the absolute terror. Like just genuinely, that's the word I can describe it as, the terror mm. uh of just being there alone uh, like if only someone could calm me down because I didn't have the tools to calm myself down mm-hmm. at that point I didn't really understand it very well even though it was there I can remember back to when I was like 13 14 I can remember it being there but it was never to this degree mm-hmm. right so nobody really noticed um even though I did I did got out of exams beforehand because of panic attacks and my teachers, again, at the, high sc- at the high school thought I was just trying to get out of it because I didn't study enough. So I would take yeah. it again. Mm. You know, so there wasn't a lot of awareness about, well, there wasn't any uh, <laughs> yeah. about it. So yeah. uh, it's, it's, it, it only came out when I legitimately left the exam. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? And, and uh, like, <laughs> I think it's, it's so difficult for people that haven't experienced that and certainly before I'd experienced that I just didn't understand like and and Mm -hmm. even I think people listening to that like still may find it difficult to grasp what that might feel like but I think you know Mm -hmm. the fact that you're still feeling your chest tighten and your heart rate Mm -hmm. increase 10 years later like that (laughs) I feel like that if 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 you're having trouble understanding this, I think that is like a really core point that this level yeah. of pain has stayed in your body for 10 years. Exactly. And like, thank you for sharing that because I know it sort of means reliving that experience to a degree. And I know mm-hmm. that that can be really difficult. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, I think like that's a really kind of powerful example of like the impact that it can have on you. Yeah basically like you said like it has zero effect on my life right now like the fact that I I don't know quote-unquote failed that test which I mean isn't the case but anyway it has zero effect on my life right now and I'm still like I'm calming I'm trying to calm myself down right now Mm -hmm. because of the aftermath of telling that story Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know so yeah do you need a minute no no I'm 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 fine I've been here it's fine. Okay. Right, cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. So you moved to Scotland from Turkey for your masters. Um, I did, that's yeah. correct. Yeah. And when did you start and finish your masters? Just for a bit of a timeline. Uh, yeah. So it was uh, 2016 September uh, is when I started, mm-hmm. and um, 2017 September was when I finished my thesis, and December is when I graduated officially. Okay, basically. Right, cool. So 2016, 2017. Okay. All right. Cool. Thank you. Um, so you were an international student at that time. And I mean, you still are. Yes. Um, what yeah. effect did that have on your mental health? A lot. <laughs> so. Yeah. Difficult question. Um, I understand. Exactly. So before that, I did live in, um, I did an exchange semester in Poland before that. So it wasn't my first ever experience abroad um even though the poland one was really tough as well for a lot of different reasons mainly to do with me be visibly being a minority in a very catholic country mm-hmm. uh was the was the main thing at that time mm-hmm. um but 
in Scotland. Well, it was very daunting because, first of all, it wasn't just six months this time. <laughs> it was uh, it was a full year, and it does take a toll on you because. I mean, maybe you might think in the grand scheme of things, six, 12, same difference, really. But it it, it really hits you harder <laughs> once it's um, like significantly longer, I suppose, than, I don't know, four or five months. At least that, that was my experience mm-hmm. um, anyway. And one of the other things is, I suppose it's the kind of sort of um, hidden curriculum of, of being an academic in the UK in a in a Russell Group University. So that's kind of like the Ivy League type thing, you know, like prestigious uh, university. Uh, It was very intensive uh, to go there after my education in Turkey, where basically everything was based on sort of exam type things. So you write an exam in an hour and then finish up. And uh, I I did education, like I did uh, teaching English speakers of other languages. So we had a lot of classroom practice but not much on essays and stuff like that, mm-hmm. right? Not much focus on research at all. So you go into this university and suddenly you have to write a lot of papers. The thing about ADHD is that you can work, like you usually leave it to the last day to study for the exam and mm-hmm. you sort of cram everything into your brain. Next day you just dump it out. And now you can forget it again. Good. <laughs> right. So mm-hmm. it, it happens in a very small scale, uh, like in a very uh, like in two, three days. Right. So you can mm-hmm. you can you can sort of do it in a very quick uh, time period. But when I got to my uh, master's here, I suddenly had to organize a lot of tasks around much longer sort of deadlines, you know, um, mm-hmm. so December like the first two weeks of December we would have like four papers due and I would have had to work on that those papers for like a month a month and a half and like you know really flesh it out and all that stuff and I just I I simply couldn't um I I I I found myself basically at a loss uh, in that sense and I remember I remember um writing like a 4,000 word paper uh, the night before and I would just sit in front of my laptop for like 16 hours and just crash afterwards because I simply <laughs> I simply couldn't do it other the, another way you know mm-hmm. um and so and I was I was like a very like in my university back in Turkey I was sort of like a very uh, successful student uh, type so I come here and I get less than like less than great grades right and that that was so that was like oh wait wow this is actually hard <laughs> you know so um there was a lot of that and there was also of course you're navigating a completely different country right mm-hmm. um just just the simply simple fact that um uh, just for context um, in turkey unless you're studying in a city other than your home city you usually stay with your family throughout university as well so you don't uh, move into another house usually and my family lived in Istanbul and I studied in Istanbul so I stayed with my family like um, uh, with my mother um, so not having that sort of oh okay this is my home uh, my mom usually cooks my meals you know <laughs> not having all that sort of padding let's say <laughs> underneath yeah. you um, and you know just trying to make friends with people like 
all new people. You don't have any of your best friends. Suddenly, like your friendships you curated over like 15 years, they're well, they're not gone, but they're gone. If 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 you know what I mean, like you can't just call your best friend and be like, "Can we go out for a coffee? I'm so tired." <laughs> you know, you don't have that sort yeah. sort of thing. And when you're first starting your relationship, you really have to be mindful of, oh, "Am I bothering this person?" You know, and and it was just so hard. I and and so towards, I think it was January 2017, so like midway through my. Um, masters I realized I kind of just I, I couldn't um, focus on my lessons anymore uh, mm-hmm. like I, I, I genuinely couldn't listen uh, so then I started looking into this um, I don't remember what I don't remember what to, like what what initially made me think I might have ADHD I, I don't really remember but um, I did sort of a lot of research on what it's like and I was like oh maybe I do have this thing um you know so that was my idea like I didn't go in to the GP so the 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 doctor let's say uh, the general (laughs) practitioner Mm -hmm. I didn't go into uh, go in there saying hey treat my anxiety I actually went in there saying do you think I might have ADHD (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. and then uh they sent me for an evaluation with a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist told me uh, you know what, you have a lot of anxiety. So maybe we should start with that first. Like it might, because anxiety and ADHD can overlap in certain symptoms. Um, okay. So why don't we treat your anxiety first? Because that's an easier thing to start with rather than getting you on, you know, sort of quote unquote heavier medica- medication that you usually get prescri- prescribed for ADHD. Um, and I did go on what's the name of that fluoxetine um the brand name changes everywhere but i'm sure uh, the people who use it will understand what i'm talking about Mm -hmm. um but the problem is and this is one of the things that i really wanted to like i really want to sort of talk about um is that what they told me what the psychiatrist told me okay let's meet again in like a month and tell me how you're doing with this you know with this new medication but I didn't know how to how to tell if that makes sense like how do I know if I'm doing better or worse on this medication I I I just I I couldn't tell I mean now looking back on it I realized that when I started that like fluxetine my sleep schedule got completely overturned and it started the hardest part of my master's because I couldn't sleep until 9 a.m. and I would have a 10 a.m. class, mm. right? And then so I would go to the 10 a.m. class, uh, then another class, and then I would come home at like 4 and I would so sleep, I would be so sleepy, I would crash and wake up at like 2 a.m. Uh, and the vicious cycle continues, you know? So, but mm. I, I, at that point, I couldn't, I couldn't correlate that with the, with the medication, you know? I, 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 uh. I, I didn't understand. I don't know. I so think... you weren't educated on exactly. the negative things to expect. And exactly. if those happen to go exactly. back to the psychiatrist and like, discuss it. I kind of, I mean, I did read the side effects, but. No, but as in the psychiatrist didn't mention it to you because exactly. that's something that mine did, for example. Like if you have this, 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 and this, let me know and we'll sort it out. Exactly. So that information wasn't kind of communicated exactly. to and you. And there's also the thing of like, I suppose like when 
when the psychiatrist asks you, oh, how have you been doing? You don't, you don't, sometimes you just don't know how to answer because you, you didn't establish yeah. a relationship with the psychiatrist. I mean, the psychiatrist uh-huh. saw me last time for 45 minutes and this time uh, they're seeing me for like, what, 10 to 10, 20 minutes. So mm-hmm. how am I supposed to, I mean, anyone who has been to like, who has been to therapy would know, like so, sometimes you just speak about nothing for like 25 minutes, 30 minutes. And like at mm-hmm. the last 15 minutes of your appointment, that's when you start you know what, I had this terrible thing. And, uh, you know, that's when things start coming out. And when I didn't have that sort of thing with the psychiatrist, I suppose I was just like, I don't know, I'm okay, I guess, <laughs> you know, and, and, and they were just like, okay, let's continue the continue on this uh, for, for a longer while. And then maybe we can revisit the ADHD thing. But the problem is, um, I finished my master's. And I had to go back to mm-hmm. Turkey because I'm here on a visa, uh, you know, so I can't, I can't yeah, just stay. Yeah. Uh, well, even if I could, I didn't have the money to stay anyway. I had to go back, to go back mm-hmm. home, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And so I go back home and I started some sort of, mm, not therapy, some treatment uh, s- situation in Scotland. So how do I roll it over to Turkey this time? And mm-hmm. how does that thing work, right? So I wasn't sure what to do. But at that point, I kind of realized, so this is like six months into the medica- um, education, ah, medication, sorry, uh, yeah. maybe maybe even more. And I, I, I start realizing like, I'm kind of miserable with this. <laughs> this, isn't, mm-hmm. this isn't really helping. I don't remember the dosage they started me on, but anyway, I, I wasn't, uh, it wasn't good for me. So then uh, I went to a psychiatrist in Turkey uh, that my friend went to, and she was diagnosed with ADHD very recently by that person whose children also had ADHD. So I expected, okay, this this person will probably understand me. Uh, So I went to her and this was like a, again, 15, 20 minutes, because this is a public hospital, like a state hospital. So they, they, they have a lot of people coming in and out. Um, So this lady sees me for like 20 minutes and I went in and I said, so like, what brings you here today? Right. And I was like, hey, so this is my medical background. They, I, they've been treating me for uh, anxiety. But like my initial thing was ADHD. And um, I made a list of things that makes me think that I might have ADHD. And I remember the first thing she told me, like I said this, like as I entered the room, mm. she laughed. She laughed and she said, cool. uh, yeah, she laughed and she said, you have ADHD and you have made a list. Uh, I was like, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, apparently that rules me out. I don't know. Sometimes <laughs> they don't have the best bedside manner. <laughs> no, it was and already like I, I was like, oh, oh, oh OK, <laughs> you know, because you go in there and you're already feeling vulnerable about this thing yeah. that you're talking about, you know, and the person is just so condescending and like, of course mm-hmm. I made the list. I'm a, like, we can function like, like now looking back, I can tell this, you know, I can tell, of course, mm-hmm. someone with ADHD can friggin' make a list, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. otherwise, how would we society, <laughs> you know, how, how, mm-hmm. do you, <laughs> how do we adult? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, so, um, and then I went in and I explained to her, like, I went through my list and everything. 
but I went I made a list because I'm taking this very seriously and I hyper-focused on my ADHD at some point so of course I have a list yeah and (laughs) well you need to present evidence as well to that person when they've never met you before so like and uh, I mean of course this changes from person to person but this isn't a grounds uh, on which you can just rule out something entirely obviously but Mm. then she was essentially like she was like well, you can't have ADHD because you've finished your master's. Um, what? You shouldn't have been able to finish it. And I was just like, okay, I guess. Like at that point, I did believe that person because, hmm. I mean, she she's a medical well, they're a specialist, you exactly. Know? exactly. Yeah. and they have kids with ADHD, like you know, and they hmm. diagnose my other friend. So you know, like obviously the problem must be with me. Like it's something about me, hmm. you know. Hmm. but so she was just like I know this isn't ADHD you just have anxiety I'm just going to change your pills um, and just put like major depression and possibly bipolar and (laughs) stuff and yeah so so she started me on these like really heavy medication uh, at that point and we're we're sort of at the end of 2017 beginning of 2018 at this point in the timeline and so I was like okay I guess I don't have ADHD whoops you know so um but i just realized maybe like five months ago how much this had traumatized me because after that Mm -hmm. instance i didn't go to see a gp about my mental health uh up until five months ago so that's like three years (laughs) you know because i i I just I, i felt really humiliated and I felt really like, oh, you're just making stuff up. And in between, I saw like uh, another psychiatrist and they were like, oh, this might be bipolar. They switched up my me- medicine, you know, and I'm like at, at that point, I'm just kind of really frustrated and I don't want to do anything anymore about it because I kind of feel I, I genuinely I remember telling my friends, I feel like a guinea pig. I feel like they're just mm. like uh, throw, like making a shot in the dark and hoping it would work like you know mm. and and so I only had the sort of courage uh to go back um after like so my my husband and I we got together um at the end of September 2018 which is my first semester of PhD right so at that mm-hmm. point I spent one year in Turkey after my master's and I came back for my PhD right mm-hmm. and like we we started dating and uh, I, I I sort of realized you have ADHD, <laughs> you know, and and as in he does. He does. Yeah, exactly. Ah. Like, I told him you have ADHD and he was he was just like, uh, no, I'm just everyone just tells me I'm lazy. And I was just like, you know, uh, no, that's yeah. not it. Like you really need to you really need to go get checked because the, mm-hmm. you're like textbook ADHD to me, you know, like, uh-huh. and so I sort of encouraged him. And at the end of our first year of our relationship, he got diagnosed uh, with ADHD. Uh-huh. Um, and through his journey, I suppose I kind of had like opened up that little Pandora's chest inside, mm-hmm. <laughs> inside me again to see, mm-hmm. hey, you know what? I really relate to this. Like, I know this person told me I might not have ADHD, but I, I just want to give it another shot. And at that point, I have lo- I had learned a lot more 
about these um like how ADHD might present itself in um in a variety of ways uh mm. so I, I I I just I thought okay I'm just gonna go back to the GP and start the process all over again <laughs> I guess you know um and I went back what five months ago something like that I can't remember exactly and I they did the first evaluation so what they do is the GP here gives you a couple of um forms like sort of pre-evaluation type thing which didn't exist in, Tur in the Turkish one by the way <laughs> you know right. yeah it gives uh, they gave you they give you these forms and you fill them out and the GP does the initial sort of uh, evaluation and then if they think oh, okay there, there's a pattern here they will refer you to a psychiatrist so then uh, I said I gave these forms uh, to the GP and this was happening over uh, over the phone, like I had to hand hand them in personally because of COVID. Uh, so I wasn't actually in person with the doctor. And a couple of hours later, or the next day, I can't remember, uh, she called me and she was like, "Okay, so I looked over your um, you know forms. I'm like, oh my god, please, please, please tell me, please tell me I'm not wrong. <laughs> like it was really stressful. And he just she yeah. just said, you know." So it looks like you really are struggling a lot. So I'm going to uh, refer you to a psychiatrist. And I was like, oh, my God, I wasn't lying this whole time. Yeah. Like, she told me, I, like, she said I was struggling, you know. And mm -hmm. that was such a sort of affirming moment, uh, mm -hmm. to be honest, because, like, all this time, like, <sighs> Like I, I, I first thought about having ADHD at the end of like 20, no, sorry. Yeah, at the end of 2016, beginning of 2017. And finally in 2021, they're referring me to someone. Mm. It was just, it was like a very big moment for me, right? So mm. I'm starting like, because the thing with, I suppose, mental health is once you realize something about yourself it really becomes an integral part of your identity doesn't it so mm. um, you're trying to you're trying to sort of see like okay what is my identity now like who who am I all these things that I thought thought about myself like I don't know incompetent when it comes to house chores because I'm terrible with them uh you know am I just super lazy like you know because lazy is such a thing that gets thrown uh, around so much, you know? Yeah, so, in relation to ADHD, yeah. Absolutely. And, and I mean, we're, we're, we live in a society with so much, like, such a toxic focus on productivity anyways, right? And we see that so much in academia, uh, particularly. Um, so, so you're just sort of, okay, so I, can, I, I guess I can rebuild my ident identity. Maybe I wasn't lazy all this time. Maybe I wasn't irresponsible for leaving everything to the last minute because I literally couldn't bring myself to do them you know so like all these things sort of start to make sense more and I suppose that was the big um like that that was the big break that I had recently uh which wasn't in my initial form that I sent to you uh because mm. I was mm. just I was just starting to rethink ADHD now sadly yeah, yeah. uh because of the um what's the word because they are so overwhelmed over at the psychiatry 
section. I'm still waiting on an appointment, but yeah. uh, fingers crossed, I guess. So I don't even remember what was the, what the question was initially, Emily. I'm really sorry. So I'll just no, stop now. That was, <laughs> no, no, that was great. Um, I've just been looking because you've basically answered about five of the questions oh, that yeah. I had for you. In that. No, 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 which is awesome because, you know, it's just you. It's just you telling your story. And, um, you know, uh, there's a lot that came up for me sort of during that and it might be a little bit difficult for me to to remember some of that but I think some of the key points that stick out for me are um yeah definitely that it's important to kind of shop around with your Mm -hmm. medical professional Mm -hmm. because that's an experience that I've had it's something that I've heard about a lot and Mm -hmm. it's very frustrating because you are in a vulnerable you know state when you're trying to seek medical help and a lot of the time it's taken you quite a long time and quite a lot of courage to get to the point of even seeking help and then that process of seeking help can actually be really really difficult as well absolutely um and yeah the fact that you saw you know this psychiatrist and then and then sort of didn't seek help again for like quite a few years after that is unfortunately something an experience that i'm i'm quite familiar with like mm-hmm. I, I think that happens a lot and i think it's important to kind of shine a light on that mm-hmm. um that if that does happen to you and you feel like you know your experiences is your experience is um questioned I guess that you might want to get a second opinion Mm -hmm. and that definitely you know advocating for a diagnosis is something that came up with Claire Griffin in one of the Mm -hmm. previous episodes as well um so you know and and that's something that takes again it's a lot of strength you know that we don't necessarily have when we're in a vulnerable state you kind of have to come up against it again and again and again and again and and finally get to this point where you're like you know what no like my (laughs) life should not be this hard like I I surely like something is wrong and surely someone can help me with this absolutely um so I think those are really really important points to kind of touch on um I would love to talk more about Um, you know, your experience as an international student Mm -hmm. and some of how you were impacted when you were, um, you know, perceived as a religious minority. But I just, I think we probably don't have the time for it in this episode. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I think, you know, focusing on what this journey has been like for you, Mm -hmm. even um, you know, switching between two different countries' medical systems and dealing with multiple different medical professionals mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of being um, shut down, you know, by mm-hmm. a medical professional who's in a position of power over mm-hmm. you. I think all of those are really, you know, difficult experiences and things that are important to talk about. Mm-hmm. And I guess just to bring it back to the impact that it has on, uh, you know, your your role in academia. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that when I was going through a lot of my medication trials and all of that kind of thing, I was actually on intermission from my PhD. So mm-hmm. I had space, you know. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So when I was only able to sleep two hours a night, like it sucked, but I didn't have to go and, mm. you know, do my master's <laughs> or do my PhD the next day like you did. Yeah. So um, I know that that period of trying to, you know, get help and sort out management strategies and get a diagnosis actually takes up 
a lot of energy and, um, you know, not just pushing for that, but also just some of the potential side effects of the medication and all the extra appointments and, you know, all of that, like it's huge. Um, And I I just would be interested if you could quickly touch on, you know, um, the the toll that you think that might've had on your PhD journey. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, whew, that's a, that's a, that's a big one too. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, the, the, the thing, like you said, um, I, I wanted to start from the like intermission part that you just mentioned. So, uh, mm. that can be a huge problem for a lot of international students for a lot of reasons as well, because mm. some of us are here on strict funding Right. So like, so for example, I have a scholarship from the Turkish government and that doesn't allow me to take breaks at all. Like you can't switch Mm -hmm. to part time. You have to finish um, in a certain, well, I mean, of course, in very extreme circumstances, they will do a case by case um, thing, uh, like evaluation of whether you need some rest. But I don't think my case would have qualified. (laughs) <laughs> let's say it's it's for much more extreme situations um that's so, crazy but yeah <laughs> continue yeah yeah so I mean you can't like I said you can't switch to part-time uh or you can't you can't just take a break and there's of course mm-hmm. it's not just the funding but also um students like me who are here on tier four visa which is like the long-term study visa for international students and I don't mean EU students I mean international students of course, with Brexit, this has, this has like this is changing, uh, but um, I'm just going to start like talk from a non-Brexit point of view, which is when I had most of my studentship. Um, mm-hmm. um, so what happens is, we we are um, subject to a lot of different rules than home and EU students here, so I have to go and have them check my passport every so many times in a semester to show that I'm still here. I didn't flee the country or anything like that. Uh, you know, so there's like checkpoint times uh, that, that that you need to show. Um, so during my master's, I, I had to do that sort of thing as well. And during my PhD, this, this created like a huge crisis at some point at the first year, uh, in the first year of my uh, PhD. So uh, what happened was, the, in the sec- so my PhD is a bit uh, weird. Well, maybe not to the US listeners, but for the UK listeners, it's a bit weird in that in the first year of my PhD, I had to take classes, which is not the norm in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of like the exception. Uh, but it wasn't f- for the UK listeners. It wasn't a one, po- one plus three. It was very much a three, but I had to take classes anyway. Um, so what happened was in the second semester, I was taking this uh, uh, class um, and at that time I was going through a very rough patch in terms of my mental health for a lot of different reasons there was a lot of change in my life and so I wasn't go to, going to the classes because my insomnia was really acting up so was my anxiety um, and I wasn't going to these classes because in the handbook of the class uh, like the, the module it said that no attendance was necessary Right. So and it was just five classes over like it was a five five week class. Right. Um, And in the third week or fourth week, something like that, I get an email from the university and it's basically like, 
hey, we, we noticed that you have uh, gone over the maximum period of non-attendance for this class. What's, what's going, basically, what's going on? Do we need to deport mm. you now? <laughs> you know, Whoa. Something like that, you know, something to that effect. Because And the deportation card is something that they play all the time in these emails. And uh. as, as someone who does linguistics and has a lot of discourse analysis uh, stuff, this is this is this is a terrible thing to do. This is an absolutely yeah. terrible, fear mongering type thing to do. Very uh, manipulative. Absolutely, absolutely, it is. So I just I get this email and I'm like, what the frick? Like, what the heck is going on? You know, like uh, I, I thought I didn't have to attend this, these classes. So I email someone, and they say, hey, no, you know what? You actually have to attend as a tier four student. Uh, because we need to check your engagement level, is what they call it. Because apparently when you're a tier four student, uh, you might not be engaging <laughs> as well as your UK or EU national friends, <laughs> right? So needless to say, I was really pissed. Uh, so I, I, I just wrote this really long email to, you know, uh, the international office, to some, some other people in the, in the faculty, basically saying, hey, uh, this is not okay. Stop pulling the deportation card every time something goes wrong. Also, if I had to attend this class, why wasn't this written in the module book handbook? And also mm. the, the the fact like this engagement thing, like I, I just went into like this these tangents that I shouldn't have had to do, right? Mm. So I just looked mm. over five different universities um, attendance um requirements like policies because apparently there isn't an official policy from the home office of uk who basically looks after the tier four students uh, it basically just says the university at the time it said the university um decides what will count as engagement for the tier four students and right so it's right. at their discretion exactly exactly so mm. and this wasn't the case at the university of edinburgh i didn't have to attend like this many classes or else you know um and i was doing a master's at the time and now i'm doing a phd mm. so surely things must have eased up a little bit right but so mm. i just said to them like why do you have such a xenophobic um like frankly just a xenophobic um mm. policy of tier four students have to attend because they they was they were born uh, with a certain passport. <laughs> they, mm -hmm. That's what it boils down to. Yeah, that's, that's what it boils down to. You know, um, and the responses I got were weren't very nice. <laughs> well, I mean, they weren't bad. Uh, the, the, at least the written responses weren't were, weren't very bad. Uh, they were just basically, you know. I, it's something that I find very sort of British. Uh, it's a cultural thing, uh, like a difference to me in that saying a lot of okay. things to say nothing, like uh, like this inaction, like uh, to explain that sort of inaction, yeah, right. you know, without offending you. That or very whatever. political style of exactly. like talking around a exactly. subject. Exactly, yep. exactly. Just you know, just just respond to me properly. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's it's it it really doesn't sit right with me. It's a cultural thing. We don't do that sort of thing in Turkey, um, mm -hmm. but um, and then I had to sit down and talk to uh, some people at my faculty uh, about this problem, uh, you know, and uh, they they weren't a great help in that session. 
I'm sure they didn't mean to be, you know, I did, I'm sure they didn't mean to come off at the way they did. Uh, but basically, they, they basically told me, uh, you can't be writing emails like this. You need to write out, like, you maybe you need to learn how to write emails. And, <laughs> and uh, they, they were like, you know, maybe this is a you problem because you didn't have any of these problems in the first semester. Why, why are they coming up uh, this semester? And and they they brought up because uh, they were the same person who did my interview before the PhD, uh, like for admission. And they were like, well, at the beginning of the thing, you told me you would like a more uh, sort of hands-on approach, so because uh, to to keep you uh, you know up to up um, up to speed. Because that's what I said, you know, like oh, we have classes. Okay, it can keep me up to speed. Um, so like, why are you saying this now? It was all very confrontational. Uh, if that makes mm. sense, and I was like, yeah. uh, things change, <laughs> you know, yeah. and 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 I had another panic attack there <laughs> because of that whole thing, basically. And mm. yeah, it just it just didn't go very well. It didn't go very well. Um, so at that point, I just, with the help of some other people in the faculty, I just kind of decided to drop it. Um, they oh, they got back to me by the way. They said, oh, okay, sorry, no, uh. It was basically like the the um the stakes were either we will cap your grade at the exact passing grade, you know, so you can even if you get like a 70, it will be a 50. Uh, you know, that so nothing like you will just get a pass and that's it because you didn't attend the classes. Um right. or if you keep not attending them, you know, the deportation card <laughs> type thing. Oh, you know? wow. Uh um, and so I just told them this wasn't written in the module you're xenophobic, this doesn't make sense. Um, and then they they kind of happily backtracked on that and gave me the grade I got <laughs> at the end of okay. the day, basically. Well, good outcome. But yeah, again, I'm so sorry to hear that you had to go through this. Um, and I think it's, yeah, that's a really important point because if I hadn't been able to take that leave and if I hadn't been able to convert to part-time so I'm a part-time PhD mm -hmm. student now mm -hmm. um there's absolutely no way that I would still be mm. doing my PhD mm. there's just no way like it just would not have worked mm -hmm. and I do have um a friend from Singapore that she's finished her PhD now but yeah I remember because she's an international student at the end she was just like I just have to finish I don't have exactly. any other choice like exactly. because of like my visa and like all of that kind of stuff like that I just do not have any choice absolutely. and yeah that's a really important point to to bring up like for you as an international student like mm -hmm. those extra kind of barriers that you have mm -hmm. um and it's it's something I would certainly like to learn more about, mm. and and we don't have the time today. But I think, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, if 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 you're listening and you'd like to know more about, you know, the impacts that being an international student can have on academic mental health, then then please let me know. Contact me on Twitter at eking underscore sci for science, and um, I'll see if maybe I can have Seda back, or maybe if um someone else is is willing to have a bit of a chat about that aspect of things, and I think. All also, um, yeah, being perceived as a religious minority is another one that I'd really like to talk a bit more about um, either with you at some point or or with another guest because, you know, these are all um, experiences that haven't 
really come up on the podcast before mm-hmm. and it just yeah speaks to the the variety of different circumstances that academics have to deal with mm-hmm. um so again you know thank you for sharing that and you know I have so many questions um mm-hmm. but we've already gone long on this one so yeah. I just have one final one that um I think will kind of tie up this episode mm-hmm. and that is um how do you feel getting an ADHD diagnosis will alter your experience within academia Mm -hmm. and how 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 short should I keep the answer give me a time frame (laughs) uh give me give me a couple of minutes if you can okay so um I think well the first aspect is of course the whole affirming of your identity affirming of all your fears and the all these like so many years of baggage right so that's that's mm-hmm. the kind of getting a diagnosis in that sense can to me in my in my context I feel will help me immensely um especially when I'm explaining myself to other people because sadly I do have to explain myself to other people as to why I don't comply to certain norms um but the other thing of course is especially at university, like at the UK-based universities um, and around the world in other countries probably as well, getting a diagnosis can actually help you on an institutional level as well. So um, they will make certain allowances uh, when you do have an official diagnosis, but they do ask for an official paper or, you know, some official document. Uh, Mm -hmm. But it makes it so much easier to ask for certain kinds of help and especially again for international people coming to these countries from a maybe less uh, informed background like the from countries with a bit less informed background on mental health issues or learning disabilities um, this can be really helpful and this can like this should be an avenue for you to look into if you think you need extra help because extra help is actually available in some of these countries and that is mm. not something we're used to sometimes. I would yeah. I would say that, yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, and all the best with that. You know, I, I really hope that you're able to get um get some closure, I guess, on this. Thank you. Um, and and then get some extra support from the university as well for Hopefully. the final year or two of your PhD. Hopefully. Yeah, thank you. Um, so yeah, thank you, thank you for sharing. That there's so much there, and like I said, I've got so many questions. Um, <laughs> so you know, I'd love to keep in contact with you offline uh, anyway, um, and sort of see how you're going with things and and keep in contact. Um, and I'm really looking forward to to learning more about your story in the next episode Absolutely. as well. Perfect. Thank you so, so much. So just so. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just a reminder for the listeners, if you'd like to get in touch with Seda, she's available on Twitter at Alasso Parts and also via email. And we'll put links to those in the episode description. And to you listening, thanks so much for listening close to the end. Stick around for support resources and details on how to share your own story. I look forward to having you back in a couple of weeks to hear the next part of Seda's story. Seda will talk us through some of the support resources she's discovered, including medication and social media accounts for people with ADHD. Bye for now. Before you go, we have some support resources and information for how you can share your own story. If this episode brought anything up for you, there are mental health resources and emergency numbers available for various countries 
at www.checkpointorg.com forward slash global. For information found in this episode, refer to the episode description or visit the podcast section of our website, www.voicesofacademia.com. There, you can also access the full transcript of this episode, made available by our lovely Voices of Academia team member, Daniel Ranson. This podcast was written, hosted, and produced by me, Emily, with support from some very special people in my life. You can find me on Twitter at eking underscore sci for science, but I'm part of the larger Voices of Academia team. We have a website, a Twitter account, at Academic Voices, and also share stories in blog form, with the option of them being anonymous. If you like this podcast and want to hear more stories, please leave a review, subscribe, tell me what you think on Twitter, and tell your friends. The podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major listening platforms. You can also follow the Voices of Academia blog and receive notifications of new posts by email. Just head to our website, www.voicesofacademia.com to sign up. If you have a mental health or wellness story to share, we absolutely want to hear from you. Whether you're a team leader, research assistant, postdoc, student, ex-academic, or any other type of researcher. Follow at Academic Voices on Twitter, visit the link in the episode description, or visit our website, www.voicesofacademia.com for details on how to share your story. It's time someone gave you a voice.